Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. <laughs> Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Welcome to Development Hell. For every horror movie that hits VOD, countless others end up DOA. Development Hell is the podcast dedicated to unearthing these cursed horror productions. We're going to find out what went wrong, and then decide if these titles still stand a shot at the green light. I am your host, Josh Korngut. I am the managing editor of Dread Central. I am also a filmmaker in Toronto, Canada. This podcast is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Development Help. This week, we are talking about one of my favorite horror movies of all time, 1995's horror anthology Tales from the Hood. Not only are we talking about one of the best horror anthologies ever, we are joined today by the creator, writer, and director himself, Sir Rusty Cundiff. I just feel beyond lucky for the chance to be joined by this director who has an amazing career working with people like Dave Chappelle, Wanda Sykes, Morgan Freeman, and Spike Lee. Together we're going to discuss his original vision for more Tales from the Hood's films on sort of franchise that he had in mind, as well as an unrealized television show, which would have been awesome. We were lucky to get two sequels in the Tales from the Hood franchise, but that they're not exactly what Rusty had in mind. For anyone who needs a refresher, Tales from the Hood was a 1985 horror anthology movie. Each segment, there were four of them, represented a different concept that the writer-director believed affected the African-American community in the United States in the 90s. And so they, in order, were police corruption, domestic abuse, racism, and gang violence. Now, these stories, like any good anthology film were wrapped together with just the wildest wraparound story ever and maybe in some maybe in some ways it 
was the standout of the film where you're seeing three drug dealers approach this really eccentric funeral home with a very (laughs) bizarre funeral director and i guess they just have a lesson to learn this movie was scary it's funny it's thoughtful and it's really sad it's tragic I have to say it's definitely a must-watch for horror fans, so if you haven't had a chance to check this one out, you've got to. Uh, So yeah, I'm about to pick Rusty's brains about, you know, these unrealized projects, but also about this really cool-sounding sci-fi epic that he just made, starring Morgan Freeman and Josh Hutcherson. Enjoy my interview with director Rusty Cundiff. You're very well known to horror fans for the Tales from the Hood films. How often do fans approach you about those films? How often does that sort of come up in your life? Probably more than I would have thought when we made the movie years ago. God, I, I don't like to think how long ago it was. It only reminds me of how old I am. But you make things in a you make things in a bubble of the period and the time that you're in, and you're just focused on everything about it at that moment. And to be years down the road and have, you know, I've, I've done so many talks at different schools about it. A few places have kind of taught it in, you know, a small way as part of a curriculum, not the whole curriculum. And to have so many, I think one of the reasons why, especially in the the, the first tales, the one that everyone really loves, I, the, the stories, sadly, somehow all seem to be still pertinent it's like we're living so much of these uh these things over and over again so in one way it's you know it's gratifying that uh people still have a connection to it and new people find it and then at the other on the other hand it's you know it's kind of frustrating that you're still dealing with the same ills in society but it i guess in a sense that makes that's understandable because you know the whole idea behind tales anyhow was that you know we are the monsters humanity we're our own monster there's you know the the paranormal is is not really what we have to be afraid of we really have to be afraid of the people walking up and down the street that's Mm who is going to come and get us um and so the idea that you know people are people from hundreds and hundreds of years ago to today, you know, we still haven't grown out of some of the, of what we are, which is basically uh, at some level killing machines. (laughs) Yeah. And maybe in some ways it's gotten better, but in some ways it's maybe gotten worse. How has um, audience response to the film changed over the last, you know, 30 years? Well, that's really interesting because, um, you know, I would say when we first came out, for instance, uh, when the film first opened, um, there was a commonality of opinion amongst groups as it related to some of the stories, uh, because it's anthology within tales. Mm-hmm. And then there was a, a divergent um, opinion about some of the stories. So the story about the rogue cops that... Uh, was the one that opens opens up the film. Um, I I had a lot of white audiences at the time that really did not like like that story, but they they really liked um, the story at the end, which was uh, uh, Lamont Bentley's uh, 
uh, gang character and Rosalind Cash, who's trying to save him in that. That was kind of uh, the black on black crime story. The front part was the blue on black crime story. Um, today, there are, you know, young members of the African-American community that I talk to that don't particularly like the gang story because they feel uh, they feel like um, mm. I'm being. I'm I'm not understanding Crazy K enough because he's he's had all these problems heaped upon him, uh, heaped upon him. I don't agree with that, but that the and and I wouldn't say that that is a large majority, but there is that sentiment that wasn't there when we made the movie. On the other hand, uh, a lot more of uh, the white audience now really appreciates the cop story. Um, so you know. I guess, as with all things in society, uh, because the the film is dealing with ills that we have every day, it's kind of a fluid understanding that people that uh, is formed by the audience that kind of changes as as we change, as as we learn about ourselves and and uh, have different approaches to the things that we're dealing with on a day to day. It's definitely one of my favorite horror films, and I've been really fascinated with the journey you were on to get the follow-up titles made. And I think you've been on record saying that uh, the success of Get Out helped with, you know, interest in, in getting it funded. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, we um, we had a chance to get a sequel uh, made maybe just a year or so after the first one. Uh, and then, you know, as often happens, uh, 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 studio heads changed and on and on, and we could we could never get it off the ground, um, which is kind of too bad because that one we would have had um, at least the budget, if not more than we had for the first one. And uh, from Talking to people like that budget today, which was over a little over six million, then would probably be somewhere between eighteen and twenty today. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so anyhow, so we we didn't get it made, and um, Get Out comes along and does you know amazingly well, <laughs> and uh, uh, really reignites interest in uh, horror. And, you know, also an African-American horror. So, you know, you've seen a lot of things come out since then because of that. But that is what allowed us to get another shot at uh, Tales from the Hood. The The difficult part of it was that the amount of money that we had to do that, you know, these these last two iterations are less than the amount of money that we had for the first one. So the first one was $6 million dollars maybe 18 to 20 in today's money. And for these, we got three million, you know, a little over three in today's money, somewhere around five in today's money, which, you know, created a lot of, uh, meant we had to leave out some stories that we would have rather had in the anthology than the, uh, the, the follow-ups than the ones that we had. Um, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was it was quite it was quite a journey 
thanks to get out we at least got to do something and and kind of bring it back but um not having the resources to do what we probably would have liked to do uh did sting are you able to share any details on some of the stories that didn't make the cut due to budget yeah i I mean uh yes there's there's stories that didn't make the cut due to budget stories didn't make the cut due to politics quite frankly um and you know which is kind of understandable because tales is a a film that really deals with the political and social uh worlds to to some people's delight and to some people's hatred there are a lot of horror fans as i'm sure you know that Mm -hmm. do not like politics included in their horror whatsoever so that given but um yeah there's uh an example of a story a couple of stories that you know we would have liked to have done there was one that was set um at a university and kind of dealt with a little bit of the dylan roof story that was the kid that came in yeah shot up all the people in the uh church was that five or six years ago now i can't remember but um that story everyone liked it and we kept trying to shoehorn it in but because it was taking place on this university campus the number of students that we had uh in there were some party scenes some fraternity scenes and so on and so forth we just couldn't figure out a way to do it plus we were shooting um we were shooting in canada on the second one the first one we were in louisiana uh in louisiana the budget was so low it was a non-starter to begin with uh when we went to canada we thought we might be able to stretch it it was still tight and on top of that we were shooting in canada uh and i think we shot that in um uh where did we shoot that uh it'll come to me in a second but we would not have been able to get the extras that we needed i mean we obviously needed some white extras but we needed a lot of black extras that sounded like they were from the united states uh and that just didn't present itself too well up there and then uh in the second one the one where we had um keith david uh as our our mr sims um I, we shot a whole wraparound um you know so the interstitial that kind of you know holds all the stories together in the anthology we shot an entire wraparound with keith and you know some of the other actors and we uh I think we shot that was one of the first things I shot when I got down to Louisiana and we, you know, put an assembly edit together real quick and the studio gets it and says, we're, we're not going to release this. You have to rewrite it and reshoot. Well, like why? It's like, well, you're, it's obvious you're making uh, too many allusions to Trump and we don't want, we don't, you know, they were worried about us taking the piss out of Trump. Uh, I just work with an Australian direct uh, uh, DP, so I'm using Australian terminology for some reason. But I then I had to rewrite that story. And what we shot in, I think, about two and a half to three days, I had one day to reshoot. Wow. And so that wraparound, which now is all taking place pretty much in one room until we get to the end is uh every time i see it i just kind of um and you know these are the 
these are the, the 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 traumas and the things that you go through you know i making definitely making indie low budget films i talk to people who work on big films and they go well, it's all the same it's just bigger money i'm like yeah but at least it's bigger money yeah <laughs> i i have heard rumors about there being a series at points in development was there any truth to that and can you speak to you know what was going on there yeah yeah we uh were close um we were close on a deal that would have put it uh with nbc universal um uh as a you know we had gotten a pilot deal to to write it not to shoot it but we had a pilot deal to write the, the scripts for it um and like i said we we have stacks of stories to, to kind of choose from um and it was the classic thing the the head changed before um spike steel could be done because spike is still our executive producer on these and when the heads changed the the person that came in is like no we don't want to do it oh <laughs> it's literally um you know literally a choice that the 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 new uh, person in charge over there decided now is that mean you know you're at the end of that development or is there any hope for the future of a series we are always looking for some way to do more with uh uh tales and we'd love to you know get a series and every now and then it comes back up so um i i can't say that that's that's the end because we're always pushing but uh it's it's uh it's been a it's been a weird struggle to be honest i mean it and the tricky part is you know making the deals we have to make spikes deal our deal and uh all of that but fingers crossed that uh you know we we could do something you know when i worked on creep show with um uh, a couple of years back with greg nicotero it just made me want to do it all the more uh because that was so much fun but uh, anyhow yeah, because Creepshow is a great example of sort of the tone and direction that this could take. And you have a lot of experience in the world of TV. I'm very curious, what is Dave Chappelle like to work with? Oh, man, Dave is it. He's you show up to work uh, and you just don't know what you're going to see. And you, but you know, it's going to be fun and it's going to be good. That's that's what working with Dave is. Yeah, uh, he was one of the. You know, I, I I had to have I always had to have a camera on Dave when 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 I was working with him. So when we would shoot, even if I was doing someone else's coverage, I still kept a camera on Dave because you just never knew what he was going to say. And it was like you're, you're always trying to catch lightning in a bottle with him mm -hmm. um, because you, you can ask him to do it again. And he's not a jerk. He won't go. I can't do that again. But it'll still be slightly different so uh because he's always you know his his comedic juices are uh always flowing and when he kind of goes down into the the characters that he was doing and, and it was interesting because i would talk to him from time to time and he'd go yeah no i haven't figured this character out yet so he really put a lot of thought into what looks like sometimes just lunacy and craziness but for him, he had his process where he would figure out what this character was about and where it was going. And he, and he was he was um, 
pretty sharp about how he wanted to do those things. Um, I'm also a big Wanda Sykes fan. I'm curious, you know, what is that set like? Wanda is, <laughs> you know what? She is like warmer than you would probably think. That's that's the best way I could say it. I mean, yeah. because you see her, you know, her her comedic persona, you know, very, very smart, quick, sharp, cutting uh, the way her comedy is. But, you know, she, she's also a genuinely good, warm person. Uh, so I think that's probably what I kind of took away from the experience of working with her. And I've worked with her a couple of times now. And and I'm always like, I'm like, oh, yeah, she's really actually kind of nice. She's, mm-hmm. you know, she's a, she, sweet, maybe the wrong way to say it. But she's 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 definitely got a, a warm side to her that you don't get in uh, her comedy. Um, you've clearly worked with tons of icons. Would you say Morgan Freeman in 57 Seconds? Was that sort of one of the like most prestige of the field that you've got to develop with? Uh, yeah, working with Morgan and Josh and, and the entire cast, but definitely the, the two of them on 57 Seconds was, you know, uh, for me, kind of stepping into a, a different... Uh, a different space with the type of actor that I was working with. Um, you know, they're so keyed in to who, what their characters are, their motivations, that the conversations that you have with them are, are you know, you're not, you're not directing in the same way. You're kind of watching where it goes, and, and then maybe you're just doing a little oh a little nudge a little guide this way or that mm-hmm. um as opposed to you know having to you know kind of get into the trenches and and help someone understand what their character is doing so you know working with them and finding out that i you know we had them in the movie you know the initial thing is oh my god uh, this is uh, let me i'm going to really have to have my myself together for yeah. this um but at the same time it it allows you to to kind of focus on things in a different way because they bring so much to the table um the scene in the plane uh towards the end where the, the plane is going down and franklin is kind of accepting this and you just see all the stuff play on his face um i was like well do you want me to talk it through he said no no i got it and I just put the camera on him and let it sit. And he just, he just brought it. Whatever was happening up in here was happening there, but you can read it all on his face. Um, and to me, it's like one of my favorite little scenes in the film. It, you know, there's no effects or anything, but it's just this guy really giving it, giving you everything. And, 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 you know, without words, it's a uh, really, really sweet cool to see and watch an actor that that can bring it like that i believe and correct me if i'm wrong that fans can watch 57 seconds um via like vod and rental do we know anything about the future of how fans can access this film and streaming or is that all sort of locked up right now yeah i'm i, I wish i could tell you that i knew more about it other than the apple of it all but uh yeah. um i'm assuming at some point you you know it'll end up on a 
DVD on Amazon or something like that. But that's an assumption by me. So. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And congrats on the exciting new film. It was really awesome chatting with you today. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Development Hell. If you enjoy this podcast, then please do us a major favor of leaving us five stars and writing a positive review. It really makes all the difference in the world. We'll see you next week with a brand new episode of Development Hell. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.